All right, turn in your Bibles to the book of Malachi, Malachi, chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 6, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 2, verse 9 today. Pastor Mitch is giving me a look right now. He doesn't even know about the New Testament stuff I'm going to be doing, too, on top of that. Um, we're not going to spend as much time digging into the text tonight because, honestly, the text tonight is very straightforward. There's not a lot of context that I need to explain to you. There's not a lot of deep theological nuance there that I need to kind of illuminate for us to look at. However, I am going to spend some time in the book of Hebrews and in the book of First Peter because we are talking about priests we are talking about sacrifice. We are talking about worship. And I want you to have a clear picture, not only of what Corey says those things have to do with you, but what the Bible says those things have to do with you. So I'm just giving you the heads up that that's what's happening. We're going to start in Malachi. We're going to move to Hebrews. And then we're going to move into 1 Peter. That's our plan for tonight. All right? Everybody ready? Buckle up. Let's go. All right, so as I told you last week, the book of Malachi is structured around six issues that God has with his people. Six disputations, as the commentaries like to call them, okay? And so last week, we talked about how the first disputation wasn't really a disputation because it was God saying, I have loved you. And the people of Israel said, how have you loved us? Now, today's disputation is very much a disputation. There is no doubt about it. So let's look together at Malachi chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, and this is what it says. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So right there, that is the disputation. God is saying to the priests, you have despised my name. All right, and the priests are saying, how have we despised your name? This is what it says, starting in verse seven. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say, that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? 
Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my, com- that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction." So, God's mad. And one way you know God's mad is by the title that he uses. What does he call himself repeatedly in this passage? He calls himself the Lord of hosts. Do you know what that means? The Lord of hosts is a way of saying the commander of the armies of heaven. Literally, God is making military threats against his people right now. He is saying, this is such a big deal, I am reminding you that I have an army that you cannot fight. And he says it over and over and over again. He wants Israel to understand that what they are doing is unacceptable. They are worshiping in a way that is unacceptable. God begins this passage and he, ta- he gives an analogy from human relationships, right? He says, a, f- a son honors his father and a servant his master. He gives those two relationships. So you have a father and a son. That is a relationship of love and of honor, right? And then he says you have a servant and his master. That is a relationship of fear and respect, So God is essentially saying to Israel, there are two ways for you to relate to me, but either way you do it, you're doing it wrong. You do not love me. You do not honor me. You do not fear me or respect me. He wants them to understand right off the bat the gravity of the situation. And this is what was happening. The priests were offering blind, sick, or crippled animals as sacrifices. Now, some of us who are not well-versed in the Old Testament sacrificial system or who do not live in that time period might say, what's the big deal? First of all, you have to understand that to them, livestock are money. Livestock are money. And so when you have an animal that is crippled or blind or defective in some way, you're not making a lot of money off of it. Because what makes you the most money is being able to, to breed your animals with animals from other people's flocks or herds. 
And so if somebody shows up and they say, hey, I've got this prize-winning bull. I would like to meet it with one of your cows. And you're like, well, I got this blind Bessie over here. Nobody wants that. That is useless. So the only thing you can do with blind Bessie is make hamburgers. Huh? All right. Hamburgers are great. But that is not what God requires of us. It's not what God required of Israel. And so what the people of Israel thought was they thought, hey, wait, it's a loophole. I got this useless blind animal, this crippled animal, this defective thing that I can't do anything with. I'll use that for my offering. Now they're required to give the best. You give that prize winning bull as a sacrifice. That's what you are supposed to do. But here's Israel saying, nah, I'm going to give this garbage over here. Now, part of why they were required to do that is not just because God is being selfish and saying, I want the best for me. It's God saying, this is a statement of faith for you. You are saying by giving this to me that you trust me to care for you and your household. You are taking something that could earn you quite a bit of money and you are literally giving it for nothing to me. You are saying, I trust you, God, to care for me. It's the same thing we do when we give financially to God. This is, what's, this is what God calls us to. We are saying, I trust you, God, to care for us. Remember, David dealt with this exact issue. And he said, I will not give to God that which cost me nothing. Israel is giving to God which gain, that which gains them nothing. So God says that they are despising his name. He says, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? It's evil. He says they're despising his name. The, the word despise means to feel contempt or deep repugnance for. Literally, they're saying, I do not. It's not even that they don't care about God. They're saying, I hate the things of God. That's what God's saying they're doing by doing this. Now, they would, they would say, no, 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 no. We're not despising your name. We just found a loophole. But God is saying a loophole is despising my name. God is saying, by doing these things, you are hating me. And he goes on and he says, hey, listen, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? In other words, some big shot is coming over to your house are you going to serve the cheap meat you bought off the clearance rack at Walmart? Or are you going to get the good stuff? They are literally giving to God, the creator of the universe, the Lord of hosts, that which they would not serve to a local official. Wow. Talk about misplaced priorities. Talk about misunderstood worship. And so he goes on in verse 9, he says, And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? See, the role of the priest, part of their role was to seek the favor of God on behalf of the people. They prayed for the people. They interceded for them. They offered sacrifices for them. Their responsibility was the spiritual well-being of the people and their relationship with God as a community. Now, 
The individual people were responsible for their own relationships with God. Don't hear me wrong on this. But the priests bore extra responsibility in the same way that Pastor Mitch and I bear responsibility for all of you, but that does not mean you bear no responsibility for yourself. And so how can the priests find favor? How can they entreat the favor of God with the way that they're conducting themselves? God, show us favor as I give you garbage. And in verse 10, and this has always been one of the most impactful verses in Scripture to me. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God's desire is that worship not take place at all if what's brought is half-hearted leftovers. Going through the motions is literally worse than not doing it at all. I'm going to say that again because I want it to register. Going through the motions is literally worse than not doing it at all. Wow. That's literally what God is saying here. I would much rather one of you just have the courage to shut the doors and go home than to do this. Wow. (laughs) Right here. Because how often have I, in my own spiritual life, done things in a half-hearted way? How often have I said things like, well, I'll have my quiet time if I get to it. I'll pray if I feel like it. I'll get around to that. I'll do this later. I have given God what is left over and given him half-hearted worship. And God says it's literally better if you just did nothing at all than to do that. So he goes on in verse 11, and he, he, he shows us the ultimate purpose of worship. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Why does God desire right worship? For the glory of his name among the nations. That's why God desires right worship. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God telling Israel to tell their children what God has done. That's why he keeps telling them to build altars, to set up a marking post, a remembrance, to stack up some rocks, do whatever it takes so that future generations, when they walk down this road, they'll see that pile of rocks and go, oh, this is where God parted the Jordan River. Oh, this is where God saved the Israelites. This is where God worked a miracle. Over and over and over again, God commands that we worship in a way that lifts his name high to those who don't know him. Worship is about remembrance, remembering what God has done. But worship is also about faith or looking forward to what God will do. See, the reason why God wanted Israel to remember what he did was because he still had promises that he hadn't fulfilled yet. And so when Israel was saying, you're never going to fulfill these promises, God, he's saying, look back at all the promises that I fulfilled. Like we talked about last week, right? Last week, Israel, how have you loved us? And God says, you're still here. 
I have not utterly wiped you off of the map. Worship is about remembering what God has done, and it's about faith in what God will do. So God then gets to the underlying heart problem. Verse 12, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand? Israel doesn't care about worshiping God. That's the underlying heart problem. They do not care about worship. They literally find it wearisome. What a weariness this is. Oh, I've got to go do this again. And it says, and you snort at it. Saying that they snort at it is a way of saying that Israel had kind of this derisive or dismissive kind of laughter. Like, oh, man, again? Here's God again wanting me to do this. Well, literally, he says in here, you, you bring what's been taken by violence or is lame or sick. Literally, some people are bringing stuff that they just stole. I don't want to give any of mine. I'm going to go take Greg's stuff and go offer that. That counts, right? God just says bring a sacrifice. That's all that really matters. And Israel doesn't understand why Paul in Romans 9 says, not everybody who's descended, or in Romans says, not everyone who is descended from Israel is Israel. This is why there's a problem. Israel doesn't care about worshiping God. And again, this convicts my heart because I often think about the things of God as things to check off of my list or even as burdens in my daily life. Do you? Israel had unacceptable worship. And in chapter 2, he tells them what they can do to fix it. The only hope for the priests is if their worship was reformed. He tells them, number one, that either they can have repentance or they will be cursed. And he literally, he, the priests have failed to protect the purity of worship, so God threatens to make them impure before all the people. And listen, I'm not going to lie to you, this is kind of gross, but this is what God tells them. He says, listen, you profane worship, and if you don't repent, I'm literally going to take the droppings of these disgusting sacrifices, and I'm going to smear them all over your faces. And then they're going to take you away to the same place they take those droppings and throw you out. So he's saying to the priest, by allowing this to happen, by going along with this, you are literally worse than these sacrifices. You are their dung. If you don't repent, this is what's coming for you. You and your offspring. You and your offspring. And he references the covenant that he has with the priest by tying it to Levi. He gives Levi two things. Levi gives him one. My covenant with him, verse 5, my covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He gave Levi life and peace. Levi gave God awe. He respected God's name. He had reverence for God. 
So what are the expectations of the priest? Stand in awe of God's name. Then in verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people inasmuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. So the, the priests have a choice. They can continue to do what they have been doing, turning aside from the way, causing people to stumble from wrong instruction, corrupting the covenant. Or they can repent and teach true instruction and flee from sin and turn others from iniquity and guard knowledge and, have, and people who are seeking instruction. See, this is where the priests were truly failing. They were not stopping the people from bringing wrong sacrifices. That was their responsibility. The first guy that showed up with a blind animal, the priest should have said, you get out of here. You take that garbage home and don't ever come back here with that nonsense again. But they didn't. And God is threatening to make an example of them. That's what that end of that passage is. He's literally saying, I will make you despised and abased before all the people. I will make an example out of you because priests are supposed to be an example of God. They are the heralds of his truth. They are messengers of the Lord of hosts and they are not taking their responsibility seriously. And God says, listen, being a messenger of the Lord of hosts goes two ways, buddy. You either do it right or I use you as an example. Now, this seems really bleak. This seems really harsh. Because here's the truth. None of us can offer a pure sacrifice. None of us can offer something that is actually worthwhile to God. See, the thing about the, thing about the sacrifices, when God told them to bring their best, it wasn't because that was what he needed. God doesn't need anything from us. We can't offer him anything of value whatsoever. It was a statement about faith. And so here we are, what do we do? We have nothing of value to offer. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And I want to talk for a little bit about the goodness of God in the priesthood of Christ. The goodness of God in the priesthood of Christ. Starting in verse 23 in Hebrews chapter 9. I'll give you a little bit more time to find it. Thank you, Evelyn. <laughs> All right. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning of verse 23. This is what it says. So it's talking about the death of Jesus. It's talking about how Jesus has gone into the high place, how his blood has made pure all the things that needed to be made pure. And it says this. In verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which were copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who were eagerly waiting for him. If you have never really studied the book of Hebrews, I encourage you to do so. I might preach through it one day. Hebrews is fantastic because it takes what the Old Testament is talking about and it says this is how it applies to you, the Christian. And so here he's talking about the sacrificial system. Whoever wrote this book, he's talking about the sacrificial system and how the priest would have to go and sprinkle the blood on all the things and the ashes on all the things. And he's saying, listen, these things are not holy because these things are copies. These things are representations of the heavenly reality. And so where the high priest, who was a copy could go into the copy and do all the copy things, Jesus, who is the original, could go into the heavenly places and purify everything. So Jesus' sacrifice is a complete sacrifice. It's not just for here on earth. That's, it's not just something that's temporary. It's not just a copy. It's the authentic, real deal, and it's fully complete. It's a permanent sacrifice. The high priest would have to go every single year and offer atonement for the people. Jesus, once. And that's it. By the way, this is why we know the Bible tells us that you can't lose your salvation. Because you can't lose what you didn't earn. If you lose something that Jesus earned... Once for all, Jesus can't go back and get it again. It's a complete sacrifice. It's a permanent sacrifice. And it's also a redeeming sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, the day after the priest offered that atoning sacrifice, when you sinned, you were in trouble again. But when Jesus comes back, Jesus isn't coming back to talk to all of us about all of our sin. Jesus is coming back not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Praise God, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Listen, we now have a high priest who will never offer weak sacrifices. Why? Because he was the ultimate sacrifice. Completely pure, completely holy, not lacking in any way whatsoever. And he gave himself freely for us. And so we no longer have to offer sacrifices because Christ is our sacrifice. And so you can go out and you can find the most spotless, beautiful animal you can find. And you put your trust in that and I'm going to stay in Jesus. So that's the goodness of God and the priesthood of Christ. Now flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to talk to you a little bit as we close tonight about the expectations of God in the priesthood of the believer. Because here's the thing. So we talked a lot about 
right worship and right sacrifice and having the right heart. And then we talked about how Jesus is the one who does all the work for us. And so here we are now, well, what am I supposed to do? What does this have to do with me? What does God's command to the priest in, in, in Malachi's day have to do with Corey Taylor, New Testament Christian? Let's look together. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for, those, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Brothers and sisters, we are a priesthood. We are a priesthood. What was the priest's job? To proclaim the truth of the glory of God. That's our job. That's our job. See, we have a necessity to obey the word, not because we're saved by works. We talked about extensively that in the book of James study, right? We're not saved by works. But we obey, we obey the word because we seek to honor God. And then we see the fulfillment of God's purpose in worship. Remember that? We talked about that a little bit ago. What was God's purpose in worship? That his name would be great among all the nations of the earth. What does he say here in 1 Peter? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is verse 9, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You want to know the fulfillment of God's covenant with Levi? It's you, church. It's you. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our salvation is a testimony to God's grace, but so is our obedience. Look at what he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Listen, he's writing to Jews who are fleeing persecution, who are living in Gentile lands, but that is true of you and I. 
If the news out of New York has solidified anything in your heart, it should be this. This is not our home. This is not our people. This is not our permanent place of residence. My permanent place of residence is with God. I am a sojourner. I am an exile. And so are you. And so he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct against, among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Your salvation is a testimony of God's grace. Your obedience is a testimony of God's grace. So what is your role as a believer? You obey God's word, not because it saves you, not because it is effectual to earn you grace, not because it is something that shows God, that, that grants favor from God to you. You already have grace in Christ, grace beyond measure. Grace that you could never, ever, 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 ever out sin. You already have favor. You have favor as a joint heir with Jesus. Literally, God loves you as though you are his child, his firstborn child. You can't get more favor than that. We don't obey because we want something from God. We obey because we've gotten things from God. We obey because our testimony is important. I remember when I was a teenager, my youth pastor used to tell us all the time, watch your witness, watch your witness. And we always thought that was kind of corny. Like, oh, watch your witness. <laughs> but here's the truth. We should be watching our witness. And honestly, I'm so grateful for the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit helps me more than anything else to watch my witness. Somebody cuts me off on the freeway and my first instinct is to ball up my fist and holler. And then I go, wait a minute, shouldn't do that. Because that person might walk through the doors of Daybreak Baptist Church on Sunday and they might go, that's that guy that was screaming at me on the freeway. I ain't listening to nothing that dude says. Where's my testimony? That's not a person who glorifies God because of my obedience. They, don't have, they, they, they care nothing about the stories of my salvation and what God has done in my life. The goodness of God in the priesthood of Christ is that he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And the expectations of God in the priesthood of the believer is that we have to obey his word because we are the fulfillment of the covenant with Levi. Our salvation and obedience is a testimony to God's grace. So my challenge to you, brothers and sisters, this week, let's go out there and live it. Let's go out there and tell people what God has done. God has saved me from a family line of alcoholic and, alcoholics and drug addicts as far back as I can trace it. And here I stand, a testimony to God's grace. And most of you, you might not be able to share a similar story I've had people tell me before, my testimony is really boring. There is no such thing as a boring testimony. You are a depraved sinner bound for hell and God saved you by his grace. There is nothing boring about that. Go share your testimony with somebody this week. 
Obey God's word in the sight of unbelievers this week because you are a sojourner and an exile in a foreign land. And when people speak ill against us, and they will, because we hate abortion, because we stand for what the Bible says about marriage, about gender, because we stand for absolute truth, they will hate us, they will speak evil against us. But don't let them speak ill of our conduct. Don't let them pull up the scriptures and say, they don't even live by this. That's our responsibility, brothers and sisters. Be a testimony this week. Watch your witness. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You, you give us your word, Father, to help us to know the right things to do. And we don't even deserve that. I don't study this as often as I should. I don't think about it as much as I ought. I don't meditate on it or take it as seriously as I should, as you've called me to. And yet, Father, the grace of Christ covers even that. Lord, I pray that you would make us a testimony in this community. That we would be bold in proclaiming what you have done and what you are going to do that our hearts would worship rightly and purely, that we would not offer you half-hearted leftovers, Father, but that we would offer you the first fruits of our obedience, the first fruits of our bank account, the first fruits of our time, the first fruits of our energy, the first fruits of our comforts and our desires and our delights. I pray, Lord, that we would delight in you and you alone. Thank you, Father, for the good gifts that you have given us. Most of all for Christ who has saved us. And we thank you for the fact that whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Because he is the cornerstone. Lord, go with us this week. Help us to be a testimony among the world. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.